Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Remote Real Estate Investor. I'm Michael Album, and today I'm joined by Tom Schneider, as usual, and Clay Malcolm with Advanta IRA. And Clay's going to be talking to us today about how do we use our self-directed IRAs to invest in real estate. So I won't take up any more of our time. Let's get into it. Clay, why don't you give us a little bit of a background about yourself? Sure, be glad to. Uh, I really got interested in self-directed IRAs for my own use, and I'm an IRA investor myself, but I've also been in the business for about 10 years, coming up on 10 years now. And I've found that real estate in particular appeals to me as an asset class. And one of the cool things I really liked about learning how to do self-directed IRAs is that I get to choose that asset class and what I'm comfortable with and, and those types of things. So that's really how I got into it. It was just my own personal interest and you know, wanted to explore it for my own and then liked it a lot and got into the industry as a, in general for, as a job. I like it. You, you drink the Kool-Aid. We like, we like those people <laughs> that work in the Kool-Aid that they drink. So you know, there's, I got a lot of questions about self-directed IRA. In a previous episode, I talked about how this is one of my goals this year is to get this started. But before we do, I think it's important that we define a bunch of terms. So I'm going to list a couple of terms that I want to find, and I please answer them as well as add in any other terms that people usually have issues with. So I'll repeat these as we go through, but IRA, right? Specifically self-directed IRA, custodian and legal entity. Sure. It's a great place to start. So IRA is an individual retirement arrangement, uh, which takes the form of a, an account, a custodial account. Those started in the 70s, by the way. The government wanted to give people a way to save for their retirement using tax advantages and employer plans were starting to change in terms of the people they covered and so on and so forth. So they really felt like they needed an individual option. So an IRA is a tax-advantaged account that an individual controls. It's not controlled by an employer. It does have those tax advantages, and it's meant for them to, the individual, to put aside money, have it invest, and grow with the tax advantages specifically for their retirement years. And when you say tax advantages, does that mean when I'm funding that account, it's taxed up front or is it taxed when I'm over 65 and I'm taking them out? What exactly is the mechanics with an IRA? And apologies to listeners who are already experts in IRAs. I'm not. So I'm here with an expert asking. <laughs> no worries. Well, the reason I say tax advantage is because there's two different ways that those tax advantages manifest themselves. So the traditional IRA, which was the first one that started in the 1970s, the tax status that it has is this. When you make a contribution, it is quote unquote pre-tax money. In other words, if you put take it out of your checking account and you make a contribution, then come tax time for that tax year, you get to take a deduction for that amount. So pre-tax money in, and the thinking being there that the more money that you can actually have in the account, the faster it will start to compound and grow and so on and so forth. In that traditional IRA format, the taxation, the tax event occurs at the end. So when you take a distribution, then the distribution, the gross distribution that you take will be added to your income for that year and it'll be taxed at your income tax rate in that tax year. And there is a threshold age of 59 and a half. So if you take a distribution before 59 and a half, not only do you get taxed, but you also get penalized 10%. So again, the IRS is trying to 
create tax advantages that you will utilize and and take advantage of after you get a little older and are at more retirement age. Now, that tax advantage contrasts with a Roth IRA. So Roth IRA kind of flips the script on when the tax event is. So when you make a contribution to a Roth, it is post-tax money, meaning that your taxes have already been taken out of it. That money goes in, but as long as you put it in there and you follow the rules and the account, the Roth has been over for at least five years and you're over 59 and a half, then when you take distribution, there's no tax event. So there are two different strategies there. One is taxing essentially the fruit of the tree, which is the traditional IRA. And the other is taxing the seed, which is the Roth IRA. And both of them are very powerful tools and each succeeds better in a different type of scenario, but they're both very powerful. So that's what the tax advantage part of it is. It segues nicely into what a self-directed IRA is in as much as the self-directed part is really talking about what that money invests in when it is inside the account. So both traditional and Roth have different tax status than me personally. And so once I put that money in, it assumes that tax status. But at that point, it can start to invest in whatever the IRA allows. And self-directed IRAs means that you have an IRA at a custodian where they will allow the account holder to choose the assets that that money invests in. So that could be a wide array of things. And we'll talk about that as we move through the discussion. But the idea of choice is really the thing that distinguishes a self-directed IRA. The account types don't change. There's self-directed traditional, there's self-directed Roth, self-directed SEP IRA, simple IRA. All those account types stay the same. The difference between those accounts or the term self-directed adds this feature where the account holder can actually choose the assets that that money invests in. So Clay, I want to jump in here because we're setting the stage with all these terms. And I want to ask the question is, how does the 401k fit into all of this? Great question. So 401k is an employer account Mm -hmm. and it's slightly different than an IRA. I, I sometimes characterize IRAs as kind of standardized versions of 401ks. The 401k is sponsored by an employer. The plan document actually has a lot of the operation of that plan written into it. So that 401k plan might offer a loan provision to its participants, which IRAs do not. It might offer Roth contributions from the employer, but it doesn't have to. That 401k plan can say, we'll use the parlance that we just talked about, it can be self-directed or not. So the 401k plan may very well say you don't get any choice in terms of how this money is invested while it's in the plan. But the plan document can also allow for some freedom there. So it really is a slightly different employer plan that I think has a lot more features to it. And I think that IRAs tried to standardize that a little bit to make it available for the individual. Okay. And so if someone has a 401k with their employer, because I think a lot of our listeners do, they're W-2 earners that have an employee-sponsored 401k, are the things we're going to be covering today in the self-directed IRA discussion applicable to them? Or do they need to then say, okay, my employer controls my 401k, I need to go open up a self-directed IRA to be able to take advantage of what we're talking about today? It's kind of an either or. So I would say this, that it's important to know what your plan provisions are. 
So for anybody out there, it's a good idea to talk to the administrator of the plan or somebody in HR or somebody who knows what the features are so that you do know what your options are. Now, typically speaking, most 401k plans, when you're still employed by that employer that's sponsoring the plan, that means that the money can't move. You can make contributions in, but it's locked into that plan's mode of operation until such time as you either separate from employment or you're old enough to start take distributions. There is a couple of things that you can think about, though. Some 401k plans are written such that there's a feature called an in-service distribution or an in-service rollover. And what that means is that that plan is written such that the employer can stay employed, doesn't have to separate from employment, but can take some of that money without tax and without penalty and roll it out of the plan so that they could self-direct it with another custodian. Mm. So that's one thing to ask. The other thing is that there may be self-directed style choices that you make in that 401k plan. So again, asking the administrator or somebody who's taking charge of that plan is always a good idea to know where your choices are. Now, once you've separated from employment, then that starts a different set of possibilities. Typically speaking, once you've separated from employment, you have the option to do a rollover out of that 401k plan into another qualified plan or an IRA without tax and without penalty. So that does free up that money to be, to move it around. It really just kind of depends on the way that the plan is written. Also, you know, these days when people have multiple employers, it's pretty common for somebody to have been in possibly two or three 401k plans. And a lot of times they've actually left those funds with the former employer plan. So one of the things I always encourage everybody to do is take an inventory of all of their retirement money, whether it's old 401k plans, 457s, 403a, 403b, different employers, traditional Roth IRA. These days, health savings accounts are a thing that you need to take advantage of as well. But taking an inventory of where all your tax advantage money is I think is a really good way to start because there is flexibility in terms of rollovers and transfers to position that money where you will be able to put it to its best use. In a lot of cases, that's a self-directed plan where you can invest in all kinds of things. It's wild to think about how much money right now is just in accounts that people don't even know about where they were funding their HSA or funding. That's a good point. I love these episodes where we just jump right into the meat of it. And Michael and I were joking before that this is like such a self-serving episode. Like we're basically just writing our questions that we want to know down. And we get to ask. Yeah. (laughs) All right, Clay. So let's jump into the why of a self-directed IRA and what seems Pretty self-evident up front is you have a lot more control in the way that you apply your funds with your retirement account. Any other thoughts on the benefits of using a self-directed IRA? And I'll make a distinction here real quickly. So self-directed, again, it's really a marketing term, right? It's, it's a descriptive term. It's not an account type, which is a thing that a lot of people don't realize. It's not a separate type of account. It's not an IRS distinction or a legal distinction. It's just a description. And it means that there's going to be a choice. So, you know, if you have an IRA at Schwab or Fidelity, you may very well have a a self-directed IRA, but your choice is usually at a bank or brokerage house is the the choices are usually just publicly traded securities. So the fact that you have a choice between 10 mutual funds or these stocks and bonds or whatever it is, does legitimately make it self-directed 
but it doesn't actually give you access to the full array of assets that are possible. So one of the things I think that a lot of people don't understand is that a custodian, which is required for all IRAs, and, and I'll just share briefly why that is, the IRS is going to give you this money and put it in a tax advantage state for years or even decades, but it tracks it. Make no mistake about it. You make contributions, that's tracked. When you take distributions, it's tracked. And the money is also valued every year, and the, the activity of the account is documented. So right, wrong, or indifferent, maybe the IRS doesn't quite trust us, so they have a custodian who oversees that bookkeeping function, records the contributions, records the distributions, and the activity of the account. So a custodian is required for IRAs. It's actually not required for 401ks, like we're going back to the thing we talked about a little bit earlier. Mm-hmm. 401ks have a trustee that performs basically that same function as the custodian. But the custodian for IRAs is actually the place where the asset choices are determined. So the IRS does not say to custodians, hey, you have to allow everything that's allowed by law. That's not the way it is. The custodian actually chooses which assets that they're going to provide for their accounts. So banks and brokerage houses in the 1970s when IRAs started, really, they took a look at the rules and they built a business model around those rules. And it said, and the offering or the agreement is basically, hey, we'll be the custodian for your IRA. But while it's with us, it can only invest in these things that we sell, publicly traded securities usually. And they make a commission on the sale and so on and so forth. And that's the revenue model. So that's their business model. No harm, no foul. And when the stock market is performing in a consistent way, that's a pretty passive way for your money to grow. And so it was very successful for decades. I would say coming back to where we were kind of headed in terms of self-directed and what makes it powerful is we're talking about the asset choices themselves. So there are custodians out there that are not banks and brokerage houses that offer service to all of the asset choices that are available by law from an IRS perspective, meaning that it's not just stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. It could be physical real estate. Could be metals, so gold, silver, platinum, or palladium, the physical metals, private equity, private lending. There's a vast array of those things, but you have to have your IRA money at a custodian that handles those assets in order to invest in those assets. And the reason that banks and brokerage houses typically don't offer that full array of assets is because the bookkeeping is much more idiosyncratic and complex. So, they don't have a real incentive to do that. And this is where self-directed kind of <laughs> shoots itself in the foot as a term. So lots of times when people say self-directed IRA, they mean a custodian that handles alternative assets. So that is the more common understanding of that term. So these self-directed IRA providers typically will offer all of the assets that are allowed by law. And so you as the account holder get to choose, oh, well, I'd like to have 100,000 of my funds buy a property at 123 Main Street and have that be a rental property. And then I'd like to have you know 50,000 of it, I'm going to make a bridge loan to somebody or so on and so forth. So that's really the landscape in terms of a custodian, their role, and how that shapes which assets your money can get, be invested in. Great. And so can you give us maybe a high-level overview of what some of the rules or limitations are with these types of accounts and maybe you know what's limited 
when we're talking about different asset classes? Sure, we might as well knock that stuff out of the way. <laughs> there are two broad asset classes that are, that are not permitted, and those are life insurance and collectibles. Life insurance is pretty self-explanatory. Collectibles is things like fine artwork, collectible firearms, an investment wine cellar, things like that. Very rare coins and things like that, collectible coins. And I believe, again, that this goes back to the IRS and the fact that they are tracking and valuing these assets because they always want the tax event to be appropriate. And so this marketplace for collectibles, let's say a 65 Mustang, is so variable and so hard for the IRS to put a value on that it makes it harder for them to collect what they think is the appropriate tax on that asset. And so they just said, forget it, we'll disallow that. So life insurance and collectibles are out. Okay. The other broad kind of set of things that you need to look out for in terms of rules is a set of people called disqualified persons. So there's a concept that the IRS has, and I realize we're getting into the mind of the IRS, which could be a little bit dicey, but... Dangerous they, territory. <laughs> <laughs> they, again, want to make sure they're going to give us these... The agreement is for them to give us these tax advantages, but they want to make sure that there's not any shenanigans that change the tax event, right? And so they have this idea of no self-dealing meaning that, again, there may be a little mistrust going on here. The IRS might say, well, shoot, if, you, if your IRA buys a rental house that you already own, you might change the pricing structure so that the tax event is different, right? And so, again, for their own convenience, they basically said that the IRA cannot do transactions with the account holder and their spouse, ascendants and descendants, and the descendant spouses. So all those people are considered to be disqualified persons to that particular IRA. And so all that means is that that set of people, they have some restrictions in the way that they interact with the IRA's money and assets, right? They can't, they can't buy and sell to and from each other, no credit arrangements. So a disqualified person can't loan to the account and vice versa, no collateral arrangements, the disqualified persons can't use or take personal benefit from the IRA-owned assets. And the disqualified persons also can't provide services that help the IRA. And again, this goes back to the IRS's mindset. What they think is, so contributions to any of these tax-advantaged accounts are all in cash. Easy to track, easy to value. But let's say your IRA owns a rental house and you want to go over there and build a porch on the back. Well, how does the IRS value that? If they knew my carpentry, they would say, in my case, not very much. They wouldn't value it very much. But the idea is that you would be making a non-cash contribution to an IRA, which they find hard to track and hard to value. So they just said, forget it. So that providing services or sweat equity, which comes up in real estate quite often, that's also prohibited. So going back to asset classes, collectibles and life insurance are out. And then there's a certain set of people that have some restrictions in terms of the way they interact with the IRA's money and assets. Got it. A lot of moving parts to this. I have a friend who has this plan about a, a self-directed IRA that he's, that he's heard. And you can blow this up as not working. So potentially buying a vacation home 
having it using it as a rental, but occasionally staying at his vacation home. How? Uh, what? What do you have to say about that, Clay? Yeah, it's Tom, to, asking for a friend. Okay, no, it, it really is for. <laughs> his, his initials is CS, is but that's not me. So yeah, okay. <laughs> CS is going to laugh at this. Let's. Let, all right, Clay, is he breaking the rules? The IRS would say that that's prohibited. Yes. All right, CS. You can't do that. Bummer. It does bring to mind a really cool strategy. So one of the things that's really, you asked earlier about the benefits of self-directed IRAs. And I think the fact that you have a really broad way to diversify, to adjust to market conditions. If one asset class goes in the tank to get out and go somewhere else, so on and so forth. So you have some huge financial advantages that are tied to tax advantages, which is, makes it even better. But I will also say that using the right tool, so whether it's traditional or Roth, in the right situation and with the right strategy, can really make this whole thing be incredible. So your friend who has an IRA that could purchase a property, let's say it's a beachfront property, and I actually know some account holders that did this. They bought that beachfront property in their IRA when they're in their 40s, and it's a rental property all the time that it's in the IRA. They can't use it yet, et cetera, et cetera. But their whole idea was, hey, we're not sure we're going to be able to buy a property in this place where we know we want to retire later. We might not be able to get it. So let's buy it now. So from the time they're in their 40s to their 60s or whatever it is, their target retirement age, it's in the IRA and it's producing returns for the IRA. And then what a lot of people don't know is you can actually distribute hard assets from your IRA. You don't have to convert it back to cash. So that beachfront property in their scenario, at some point, they're going to distribute it to themselves in kind, meaning they don't have to liquidate it in the middle, and then it will become their personal property, and then the rules go away. So they actually secured the property that they wanted 20 years in advance of when they're going to go and use it as a retirement home, but they controlled it for that entire 20 years without any possibility of it you know, not being up to them what happens. So they picked a great, first of all, they had a vision of what they wanted to do, which is always helpful, but they, they chose the right tool. They found out what the rules were and they're just, they're implementing it beautifully. So I, I love it when people find out how the tool works and they marry it to what their goals are. It's just a great thing to see. That's an amazing use case. So going back from what we've learned earlier in the episode, if I'm doing this as a Roth IRA, I'm not paying any taxes on that conversion once it becomes a hard asset. And if it's doing as a traditional IRA, I'm getting taxed at the fruit versus the seed. So number one, am I understanding this correctly? And number two, under if it's an IRA that it's being taxed at the fruit at when you're 65, when you're taking it out, how would they do that on real estate? You are understanding it correctly. So whether the distribution, that's the technical terms of distribution when you take the money or property back out of your IRA, whether it's an in-kind distribution or cash, is taxed at your income rate at that time, if it's in a traditional. And I think that the, going back to the, the strategy or the, the idea behind it was when you're making contributions, when you're younger, presumably more in your earning prime, your income tax rate might be higher. Whereas when you're in your 60s or 70s or whenever it is, and it keeps getting later as we all live longer, but you might be working part-time or not working at all. So your income tax rate at that time of distribution might be much less than your income tax rate was when you were making contributions. 
So not only did you get the deduction in the year that you made the contribution, but the overall rate at which the distribution is being taxed is less. So I think that that's part of the power of that account. And you are right that the Roth, if that house is in a Roth, when you take distribution, there's no tax event whatsoever. So assuming it is, though, how would they assess what you are taxed? Assuming it's a traditional IRA, you bought this beach house, and is it on the appraised value of when you the sale price of when you bought it? But if it's 20 years later, and right. I'm just curious on that particular use case. Yeah, that detail is that it is the appraised value at the time of distribution. Got it. Makes sense. So I want to flip it. Lots of great benefits. And just to paraphrase, you know, basically, you're not limited to just what a traditional bank set up as their business for IRAs. In doing this marketing term, self-directed IRA or custodial IRA is what we'll call it. The biggest benefit is just way more flexibility. Now, if I wanted to flip this around and like, what would be the reasons not to do it? Based on our initial conversation, it sounds like there's a lot of rules and regulations and around, you know, potentially commingling funds. Do you want to touch on that on some of the downsides of a custodial IRA? Sure. I think that the biggest thing that would be helpful to remember, it's, it's a real paradigm shift. The IRAs that are at banks and brokerage houses in publicly traded securities, and often they are also curated by an advisor or somebody at the bank or something like that. It's very passive. It takes very little of your time. You don't have as much control, but you also don't have to invest a lot of time. So a self-directed IRA where you are investing in alternative assets is a paradigm shift in as much as the account holder has to put the motive force behind the investment. So they have to talk to their... I mean, you can use your team. You can use your real estate team like Roofstock. You can use your financial team if that's your CPA or your CFB. Any of those folks, they, you can use your team. They're not trying to limit you there. But at the end of the day, it's the account holder that chooses the investment, negotiates the deal, and initiates the movement of funds. So there's a lot more effort and thought that's required on the part of the account holder. Some people love that. Some people don't love that. <laughs> there are ways to set up alternative assets in your IRA that can be more passive. It's not as black and white as I'm making it, but there is certainly a shift in the way that you need to participate when you go move into that world. In terms of the rules, I think that that really, it's a good comment. And I think the thing to say about that is that that's one of the reasons why it's important to choose a custodian that you trust and that you know will be there to help you with those rules. It would be very difficult for most account holders to keep all the rules in mind. Much easier to just have a phone number and say, hey, Clay, <laughs> mm. I'm thinking I want to do X, Y, and Z, can I do that according to the rules? And, you know, obviously, you know, custodians that do these self-directed accounts, they don't give tax legal or investment advice, right? They're a very neutral part of the equation. They're there to do the bookkeeping and make sure that the tax status is protected by the way that the account activities are documented. But they're not there to give you advice, but they can at any point, just like this discussion we're having today, you can call them up and say, hey, I would like to make a loan to my kid. And I could say, well, again, the IRS would look at that as prohibited. Got it. So that's the reason I think it's important to choose a custodian that has easy education and easy access to somebody who is keeping track of the rules. We're going to talk a little more about the custodian in a minute, but just you know, on the rules, probably not a great use of time going through all the different rules you can think of on the top of your head. But I'd love to hear what are the most common ones that people run into with issues. And also, you mentioned commingling a little bit earlier. What does that issue look like? Sure. I think that those questions are actually a little bit melded together. So 
the thing that almost everybody asks me about is some measure of their personal finances and their IRA finances working together. And technically speaking, because an IRA is getting these tax advantages, it is actually a different legal and financial entity than your personal funds. So I have Clay's personal funds, which have my tax status, and then my IRA funds, which are actually completely different. They have a different name. It's usually the name of the custodian, FBO, Clay Malcolm, Roth IRA, or whatever it is. That's actually the name of my IRA funds, and it is a separate legal and financial entity than I claim Malcolm M. So both of those two pots of money, so to speak, are out investing, but they are different. And again, the commingling part is what we were talking about before, where the IRS thinks that if my personal funds and my IRA funds do transactions with one another, that somehow or other I will monkey with the tax event. And so it would like for those two pots of money to operate completely separately and at arm's length. And so that's really what they're talking about in terms of commingling. Unfortunately, because the IRS just made blanket rules to make it easier for themselves, I think that they did, in some cases, really frustrate some investors who would like to, with no thought to changing the tax event or putting one over on the government, they just would like to have those funds to be able to have a little more flexibility in the way that they invest together. And that's prohibited by and large. So I think that that's one of the drawbacks and things that people will definitely want to investigate as they set up their strategy. One of the things that I think is really important is to make sure that you run your scenario past the custodian to find out about the rules or go to another source that's reliable and make sure that you set it up properly. Once you set it up properly, it can run relatively easily you know, through years and decades. But it really is that setup and just knowing what the boundaries are at the beginning. That's, that's where the time is best spent. Perfect segue to my next question. So this is the most boring, normal example of someone implementing a custodian-ran IRA. So I partner with a custodian. I set up a separate entity with that custodian. And I fund that capital. I'm saying this, and I'll say this real quick, and then I'll have you correct me on anything I mess up. So I set up the entity with the custodian, I move the capital over into that entity, and then I use that entity to buy a rental property on behalf of that entity. Am I saying that correctly? Is that a good, simple, boring example of this? Yeah, it's a relatively good, common example. I'll just work on the vocabulary a little bit. Yeah. So a garden variety sequence, and the way that that this looks is... Let's say the investor has an old 401k. They no longer work at that employer. And that's part of the money that they're going to use to invest. And then they're also going to make a contribution. So this is what it would look like. They go to a self-directed IRA custodian that handles alternative assets. They open an account. And so at that point, there is a vessel or a, a place for that money to go. So then they would go and they would roll over the money from their old 401k. So there's no tax and no penalty. For that, you're just moving it from one, in this case, a trustee entity over to a custodial entity. The IRS is perfectly fine with you doing that. And in fact, you can have multiple IRAs and multiple 401ks. The IRS doesn't mind that at all. So you can position the money where you want to. So in our garden variety example, the investor went, they opened up an IRA, usually a traditional, they did a rollover from their old 401k. And then in that tax year, let's say they're also going to make a contribution. So at that point, that IRA is at the custodian and in the cash position at the custodian, 
you know, usually a, a lot of the custodians will have that cash be FDIC insured. That's something that people can look for, make sure that that's the case. Then you have an entity, which is investors IRA, and it has cash. And then it's looking to go invest. So it, the investor would then go to their real estate team, whether that's Roofstock, whoever it is that they're comfortable using, and they will try to identify a property. In this case, your scenario, it's going to be a rental property. And once identified, and this is by the account holder and their team, they will make an offer. But the offer is in the name of the IRA, because again, it's its own legal entity. And then they'll work through, and if the offer is accepted, then they'll work through the closing documents. And what happens at this point, and again, the, all of the documentation is in the name of the IRA, not the investor personally. So that means the offer, the closing documents, if they're going to have a property manager, even the rent checks are made out to the IRA, not the person. So once the investor has identified the property, they're working with both their custodian, who has a transaction person that'll help them, and their real estate team. And they put all those people together and they come up with the closing documents. At closing, the funds that are needed to purchase the property are dispersed from the cash position of the IRA to the title company or wherever they're doing the closing. And then the property is actually registered with the county in the name of that person's IRA. That's the owner. At that point, often the, the investor will hire a property manager. The IRA hires a property manager. That property gets listed, gets some tenants. The tenants actually pay their rent directly back into the IRA, into that cash position. What if the investor has a property manager and the tenant is paying directly to the property manager, like managing that aspect? I assume that wouldn't be an issue? That would not be an issue. As long as that relationship is between the property manager is with that, right? Correct. Yeah. And it's exactly right. You identified that. So the IRA holder has put the IRA in a contract with the property manager to handle that, that service. So the tenant can definitely pay the property manager. The property manager can take out their fee. They can hold on to some money to pay bills if they want to, however you want to set up that contract. But usually whatever's left over, if there's overflow cash flow from the property manager, usually that will then come back into the IRA. But the interesting thing about it is that either the property manager or the IRA itself also has to pay bills, right? So it needs to pay for taxes and insurance and maybe somebody to cut the grass or you know, whatever, whatever it is. And the IRA doesn't actually have to have the full purchase price. It can actually use debt leverage to purchase a piece of real estate. So if the IRA took out a loan to buy this property, you would also have to pay the debt service. So one of the things that people will often say to me is, Clay, hey, there's money going in and out of this IRA, it seems like all the time. Aren't those distributions and aren't there taxes and all that kind of thing involved in it? And the answer is no. All of the disbursements that are going out of the IRA for purchase, for maintenance, for insurance and taxes and those kinds of things, all that is is the operation of the investment. And the money that's coming back in is coming directly back in. And that is how the IRA is earning money. So instead of a stock paying a dividend or the stock price goes up, instead, what's happening is you're receiving cash rent and or the property maybe appreciates it through time as well. So that's how the IRA is making money. The account didn't change at all. The only thing that's really changed is how that account makes money. So you have a cent what is essentially a little, almost a remote control real estate investor. So the IRA holder is still calling all the shots, making all the decisions. Hey, this is what I want the rent to be. This is 
how often we're going to clean the gutters, you know, all that kind of stuff, making all those decisions. But it is operating autonomously at arm's length from the account holder. So that IRA cash position is both dispersing funds and receiving funds. And then at some point down the road, the IRA holder says, well, it's time to sell the house um, because the, I'm going to get a great price for it and I want to move on to something else. So the investor, again, works with their real estate team. They list the house and then the proceeds from sale all come right back into the IRA. No tax event, just the way that that IRA made money. And then at that point, the IRA holder says, okay, what's next? And they start the process all over again. The remote, remote investor. <laughs> double, double, double remote. So with an IRA, you wouldn't even need to do a 1031. Is that right? If you were to sell the asset, just because it's already going to have its tax event later in the future, you're basically deferring already? That's correct. All right. So you wouldn't need to defer when you change properties because there's an automatic built-in tax deferral. If you want to make a really simple scenario there, my IRA buys a house for... dollars first of all yay for me but second of all the entire two hundred and fifty thousand dollars comes back into my ira without taxes being chipped out of it and it's ready to reinvest right so and that's because of the tax status of the account so that was only slightly more complicated than tom's example but that was great so <laughs> clay you, you touched on something and, and it sounded like we kind of breezed over it. i want to just come back to it did you say that you can actually use leverage with an IRA, so the, the cash position can just be used as a down payment? That's correct. Yes. That's great. It can be a real boost to the purchasing power. And one of the things that it alleviates too is I think that there's a misconception that, oh, I'm going to have to have hundreds of thousands of dollars in my self-directed IRA to do anything. Mm -hmm. And that's actually not true. Now, the loan has to be what's typically termed non-recourse. So when an IRA takes out debt, or gets a loan from a private lender or a bank, it doesn't really matter to the IRS, the disqualified persons to that account can't actually pledge their personal assets as collateral for the loan. Uh, okay. So usually what happens is the IRA holder goes to the lender and says, okay, well, the property is at 123 Main Street. This is what the typical rent is. This is the payments. This is how it looks to me. But it, because the collateral that's being pledged is only that property in most cases, lots of times the lender will want a little bit different loan to value. It's very common for the lender to want 30 or 40% down as opposed to maybe 15 or 20% or even 25%. Mm. So the terms often are a little bit different than you might get as a personal investor, but your IRA definitely can take out debt to increase its buying power. Great. And do you know, are there specific lenders that work really well with with these custodial IRAs? Or can I go, if I'm doing this, or Tom is a better example, can he go to the Bank of America as the Wells Fargo, you know, the big national branches to get lending for his IRA? Well, I would say this, the lender gets to choose what kind of business they're in too. And it is a little bit of a niche product. So I would say that most banks don't provide this product. Sure. There are definitely, there are national lenders for sure. And it's pretty easy to, you could call almost any custodian and they'll be able to direct you to the national lenders or even look it up online. And then there are also regional banks that will do it within their footprint. That's actually relatively common as well. Because sure. they, have, they know the properties and they know the neighborhoods well. But I would also say that from a lending standpoint, if you have a borrowing relationship from a lender, you know, just saying to them, 
hey, this is how this deal works, you might be able to get them to enter into that space. But you bring up an interesting point and a good one. You know, if you go to your <laughs> your bank and you say, hey, Clay told me you'd loan to my IRA. <laughs> It's, it is not uncommon for them to say, I don't know who Clay is and I don't know what you're talking about. Right, right, right. That's not a black eye on the bank. It is kind of a niche product and it can be had. You just maybe have to look a little bit for it. Sure. Well, that's such a good point or a good recommendation is just ask the custodian, hey, who do you, maybe some of your other clients work with? Who do you know does this kind of stuff? Correct. And so in that same vein, as someone who doesn't have a custodial IRA, how would someone go about finding a custodian or who are some of the big players in this space? And how do the custodians make money in all of this if they're not selling you know, their own brokerage products? That's a good question. The space looks a little bit like this. So some self-directed IRA providers got in early, like early 80s. So IRAs had only been around for a handful of years. Mm-hmm. So there's some larger players like Equity Trust or Pensco. Those are you know typical well-known names. There is a a lot of custodians that are more medium-sized and maybe a little more accessible in terms of you know talking to people and things like that. Advanta IRA and some others, there's a, a nice kind of mezzanine level of medium-sized folks, and you can find all of them online. All of them have a nice presence online. And then, you know, frankly, again, there are some small banks that just do this type of work for clients that they know, that they've had a long-term relationship with. So it kind of runs the gamut from relatively large companies with you know tens of thousands of accounts to middle range companies that operate a little bit differently to what essentially would be you know a, a small bank that's doing four or five of these accounts and that's all they do. Now, typically the revenue structure, as you asked about, is much more of a cash for service type arrangement. The custodian will typically say, "This is how much we charge for opening an account. Fifty bucks is relatively common." X number of dollars every time you buy or sell an asset, so a transaction fee. And then all of them typically will have some sort of annual fee that just covers the ongoing bookkeeping as well as the annual reporting to the IRS and services like that that are just required to keep the account in good standing. So usually it's not a commission on, a, on an asset. Almost none of the custodians that, I've, that I'm mentioning that, that offer alternative assets, sell any assets or have any stake in them at all. So it's really much more of a pay for service type arrangement. Okay, great. And could we give you a shameless plug? (laughs) Absolutely. I work at Advanta IRA and we are one of those middle level companies that we handle all kinds of assets. And again, you know, real estate is a very popular one, but we work on private lending. So if your IRA wants to be a lender, it can private equity, precious metals, a very wide array of assets. And, you know, again, I think the real benefit is that it's easy to get to be able to talk to somebody like me or some of the other staff that has a lot of experience doing it themselves, as well as just kind of industry experience about how to conceptualize your strategy and execute it. Fantastic. And so as someone who has never done this before, but is looking to get into it, you know, outside of going online and finding out some of the custodian options or using someone just yourself at Adventera, what questions should they be asking? What things should they be looking for? You know, what, what separates the good from the greater, the good from the bad? I think first and foremost is, are the people in the education accessible? Now, some people like to learn and understand things in written format or online or things like that. So their website 
can be an indicator of how they view education and keeping their account holders informed. Sure. Customer service in terms of how fast their transactions are. It's a really good question to say, well, once I submit my paperwork for investment, how many days does it take before you can disperse those funds? Mm. Something like that, because you don't want to get put in a place where you're, you're trying to close a deal and the custodian can't meet the deadline. So finding about, out about their procedures is also a nice way to kind of gauge which custodian will work for you. And then, of course, and this is a big one, tell them, hey, these are the assets or the asset classes that I want to be in. Do you handle those? Sure. You don't want to get into this process and then midstream, all of a sudden they say, well, we don't want to handle that asset or that investment that you want to get into. Such great insight. I got a couple of final questions for you that just cover broad things. So one of them, at a high level, do any of the recent changes to the tax law affect this industry in thinking about as using a self-directed IRA? They do. The SECURE Act was a big one. And amongst its other provisions, the age where you have to start taking required minimum distributions from a traditional IRA got moved back. from It used to be 70 and a half, and now it's 72. You also can keep contributing to a traditional IRA, whereas in the past that got cut off. The other thing is that there was a change in the beneficiary's ability to take distributions. Before the SECURE Act, People who were beneficiaries of an IRA, once the person was deceased, they had the option of taking those distributions over their entire lifetime, and that got changed. So at this point, at the post-SECURE Act, the maximum time that you can take to take distribution of all of the assets and cash is 10 years. So anything that changes the tax code in terms of IRSs or 401ks, they will automatically also affect, quote-unquote, self-directed IRAs that handle the alternative assets because it's the same account type. The other thing that I think is kind of an important point to keep in mind is income tax rates really do have a lot to do with whether this is a successful long-term play or not. You know, lots of people are thinking about in a given tax year, do I want the deduction or do if I don't need the deduction this year because my tax bracket is going to be lower anyway, maybe I contribute to a Roth, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of ways to think about that strategy, but keeping an eye on just overall income tax rates and you know speculating, okay, well, if I'm going to work less, do I think that the income tax rates are going to be less or more or things like that? That's actually really important to watch and legislated you know, in Washington. So it is one of those rules that can change or those uh, the factors that can change along the way. So it's important to watch that kind of thing too. We're closing in on almost running out of time, but I have a couple more questions. I'm going to try to get as many as I can. Is this available for a foreign investor? A non-U.S. citizen? Typically not. So the social security number is really kind of the key factor in terms of, you know, whether you're able to or you're a legal worker here in the United States, but it is a, a United States product. Now, Canada has something that's very similar, but different rules and things like that. So it's generally speaking, somebody who is working here in the United States has a tax ID number who could participate. All right. I'm going to jump into my last set of questions for you. So this is a really quick either or quick fire questions. And it's it's real estate related, like debt or equity, cash flow appreciation. Are you ready for this? I'm not sure. I'll try. Here we go, Clay. Cash flow or appreciation? Both. Debt or equity? Debt is less time consuming. I like it. Single family or multifamily? Depends on the marketplace. I like it. Local or remote investing? Also depends on the marketplace. All right, my last three for you. So the midnight oil or the early bird worm? Early bird worm. Text message or email? Email. And the last one, 
Olive oil or butter? Olive oil. All right. I like it. Good answers. All right. Put you on the spot in the last minute. That was awesome, Clay. Any final last thoughts? Really appreciate your time. You This has been super insightful. And as Michael and I said before, very self-serving. <laughs> I was glad to do it. And this is a product that is not very well known. So anytime I get a chance to just educate people, just even to let them know that it's out there, I like to take advantage of it because you know the more you know, the better you have a chance to succeed. Great. And Clay, if folks have additional questions or would love to utilize you as a custodian, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you or reach out? Yeah, absolutely. So email is good. My email is cmalcolm, C-M-A-L-C-O-L-M at advantaira.com, A-D-V-A-N-T-A-I-R-A, Advanta IRA. My office number direct is 470-695-0620. And Advanced IRA has a nice website as well. And you can find me through that as well. Fantastic. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Glad to be here. All right, everybody. That was our episode. A huge thank you to Clay Malcolm from Advanta to coming on the show today. Super, super informative. I know I learned a lot. I'm sure Tom learned a lot. We hope you did as well. Please give us a rating and review and feel free to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And for a limited time only, we're actually offering $100 off an enrollment into the Roofstock Academy. And that coupon code at checkout is podcast. So go ahead and use coupon code podcast when you check out at roofstockacademy.com for $100 off a Roofstock Academy enrollment. And in the Roofstock Academy, we've got over 50 hours of on-demand lectures, a bunch of one-on-one coaching sessions with some of our coaches, myself, Tom and Emil included, as well as access to our exclusive Slack channel and a $750 marketplace credit when you close on a transaction through Roofstock, just to name a few of the perks. Thanks so much for listening and looking forward to seeing you all in the next one.